So, how many of you have read the book on the book table, Don't Waste Your Life? A couple. Um, I think I, I want to share a quote with you from the book. I think I shared it with you in the spring, but it's such a great quote. Come on, it's Piper, so it's Don Piper, so. Um, and it does fit what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. But if you haven't read the book, um, I dare you to read the book. Um, it is, how often do you pick up a book other than the Bible and you just get truth? It's just truth. It's unvarnished, undiluted truth. And uh, if you'll read the book, you'll be challenged. There's no question in my mind you'll be challenged. Uh, I read the book right before we came here, back in 2004. I read it in 2003. We were already on our way to come here, but it just affirmed, yes, yes, I don't want to waste my life. You know, whatever God calls me to do, and I'm not saying we're not all called to be preachers, that's not what I'm saying. But whatever God's calling you to do, do it. If you don't do what God's calling you to do, and it doesn't matter how big or how small it is, if you don't do it, John Piper's right, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your life. So here's a quote uh, that I uh, shared with you last spring, and I just want to, I think it bears repeating. Piper says, the vast majority of mankind, including much of professed Christianity, is living their one very precious, very short life in such a way that they are wasting it. He continues, God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display His supreme excellence, which is what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. It's all about what? Someone tell me. Creation and providence and everything in your life is all about, someone tell me, the glory of God. I know some of you don't believe that, but if we're going to be Bible believers, it's the truth. It's about the glory of God. And this is what he's saying, to joyfully display His glory in all spheres of our life. The wasted life is a life without this passion. Most people slip by in life without this passion for God, spending their lives on trivial diversions, living for comfort and pleasure, squandering their days on bubbles that burst. Piper continues, God in Jesus Christ has unleashed us from such small dreams. I love that. I love that. He has unleashed us from small dreams. We have been set free to live the life that God has intended. So I'll stop and ask you right now, have you given yourself over to the Lord? Are you living to the glory of God? Or is it still pretty much all about you? Have you made it all about Him? Or is it still pretty much all about you? This is what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. As I have said for the last two weeks, John 11 is a worldview tutorial. Jesus is saying, this is how My people are supposed to think. And I'll review it for those of you who haven't been here. But Jesus says, this is how My people are supposed to think. This is how they're supposed to process life. This is how they're supposed to live. So we'll be seeing that as we go forward in John 11. Always looking for My glory. Always making Me famous upon the earth. Always making much of Me. That's what it's about as we've been saying the last few weeks now if you haven't heard the first two sermons please 
I, I just encourage you, I don't often do this, but just go out and download the first two sermons on John 11 and listen to them. It will really help you. This me- these messages are so essential, I think, in the modern church that we learn to think biblically. If you haven't heard them, please go out and download them and listen to them. So the last few weeks we've been talking about, we borrowed Rick, some of Rick Warren's quotes from his very popular book, uh, The Purpose Driven Life, as I've told you, it's not my favorite book. He's not my favorite theologian, but he hits it right on the head here. His opening line is, someone tell me, it's not about you. Don't you love it? What a great opening line in his book. It's not about you. The subtitle to his book is, what on earth am I here for? Well, he answers the question with the first line, it's not about you. It's about someone infinitely more interesting than you. And I, Warren writes, you must begin with God, your Creator. You exist only because God wills that you exist. You're made by God and for God until you understand that your life will never make sense. Life is about letting God use you for His purposes. Not you trying to use Him for your purposes. Is that how it is with you and Jesus? It's always been about Jesus It's always going to be about Jesus. It's never not been about Jesus. Romans 11.36, we've shared this in each of these uh, sermons on John 11. This is the whole Bible in one verse. For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever. Amen. The whole Bible in one verse. For from Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. We've been talking about it for the last two weeks. It's not about you. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and it's about His glory. I'm going to repeat what I've said to you the last two weeks. And you won't have to hear it anymore. (laughs) But beloved, this is how we're supposed to think. You, your soul, your life, your body, your sexuality, your singleness, your marriage, your kids, your career, your money, your hobbies, your plans, your dreams, your trials, your pains, your sicknesses, and even your death are all meant, oh guess, for the glory of God. They're meant to be for the glory of God. Now beloved, this is, this is a life wholly surrendered up to Jesus Christ, which of course is biblical Christianity. I know there are a lot of counterfeits out there, but this is biblical Christianity. We have given ourselves away to this beautiful God. How do we live to the glory of God? The short answer is we live in such a way that Jesus is made famous in our orbit, in our home, in our workplace, in our school, where we socialize. We make much of Christ in the things that we do, the things that we say, the things we will not do. We make much of Jesus in how we live. So, are those around you reading Jesus off your life? Can they tell you're a Christian by the way you live, the way you act, the way you speak? Is Jesus made famous in your orbit? It's why He created you. It's why He redeemed you. It's why He's left you on the planet. There is no other reason. Yes, He allows us to enjoy subordinate pleasures. Life is full of pleasures. You know, 
I could stand up here till I fell down enumerating the, the simple pleasures God has given us. But our ultimate pleasure is found in Him. It's found in our relationship with Him. Paul said at 2 Corinthians 2.14, we are to be the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God in every place. I'm going to ask you again. Are you the sweet aroma of God? You know, people are, when you walk by, people are supposed to go, you know, it's like walking downtown in Milan. You go down to the fashion district and you can, you know, there'll be some really, one of the beautiful people coming at you and you can smell them about a block before they get, before they get to you and you can smell them a block after they've gotten past you. They just smell so good, right? Well, you're supposed to smell like God. And people are supposed to be able to smell God on you. It's part of our evangelism, beloved. So the last two weeks, John chapter 11, we saw that Martha and Mary sent for Jesus because Lazarus was sick. Verse 4, Jesus said the sickness of Lazarus was what? It's for what? It's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so He ran to Bethany to heal Lazarus. Is that what happened? Jesus loved him so much, he waited two days so Lazarus would die. And we've been talking about this. How do we understand this? How is this love? And we've been seeing how this is love as we've gone through this awesome, awesome text. We talked about the Greek, the ISV, and the NIV are wrong. They get the translation wrong. They they in, indulge in a little theological mischief. They insert a word that's not in the text. They insert the word yet. If your Bible says yet, Jesus loved them yet He stayed, it's wrong. Mark it out. Mark out yet. It should be so or therefore. So the NIV and the ISV are wrong. Mark it out if you have that in your Bible. There's a huge difference between yet and so. Yet implies indifference. So tells us, or therefore tells us, there's a reason he has tarried. And we find out it's love. We find out it's all about love and it's all about the glory of God. This is what we see in John 11. If we believe that it's all about us, if we believe that, that human well-being, human comfort, human ease, Human temporal happiness is the highest definition of God's love. We will never understand John 11. And we haven't fully understood the Gospel if we believe those things. It's imperative that we hear and understand what God is telling us. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so He let Lazarus die, and He let Martha and Mary go through a very sorrowful and difficult trial. Why? Because He loved them. You say, Jim, I don't understand. Let me, get, let me tell you something, beloved. There are many times, particularly in the hard spot, you're not going to understand what God is doing. What are God's people supposed to do when it's hard and we don't understand? Does anybody know? Trust the Lord. Right? We trust God. We don't understand, but we trust Him. It's not that hard. Christianity is not hard, really. God means for His people to trust Him. When they don't understand, trust, trust Him. Trust Him. 
What is the preeminent goal of divine love? We've been talking about this. That you might know Him. Sometimes that happens in great blessing. But most frequently it happens in great trial. God discloses Himself in great trial. He allows His people to pass through trials and tribulations. And He comes to them. And He reveals Himself to them in a more profound way. The purpose of divine love is that you would know Him better and love Him more. And if you will trust Him through the trial, you will know Him better and you will love Him more. It's not about Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It's about what God wants to do through Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Beloved, it's not about you. It's what God wants to do in and through you. We talked about it last week. What's God going to do through this miracle? Yes, He's going to glorify Himself. And He's going to bring inexpressible joy to His people. But what was the other thing we talked about last week? He's going to convert sinners who witness this miracle. Beloved, you may be in a trial right now. Because some unbeliever is supposed to watch you go through it and see the glory of God. And see that this great God's real. He's not a fairy tale. He's not a myth. He's real. He's a rock that you can stand on in the hard time. There are unbelievers in your life who are supposed to see this. They may be members of your own family. They're supposed to see this in your life. Your co-workers are supposed to see it in your life. Your students, your fellow students are supposed to see it in your life. This is the compelling theology lesson we've been talking about. God is always pursuing His glory. He's always pursuing His people's joy. This is one pursuit. It's not two, pursuit because, two pursuits because as He pursues His glory, He is in fact pursuing His people's joy because His glory is their ultimate joy. We're going to see it on the pages of Scripture. We're going to see it on the pages of Scripture. Tonight We get the payoff tonight as we've been setting the stage for the last two weeks. And what I want to say to you, we're going to see the joy. We're going to see the glory of Jesus. And we're going to see the joy of God's people. But what I want to say to you, will you trust God in the trial? Will you expect to see the glory of God? Will you expect the joy of God? Beloved, this is a worldview tutorial for us. We're supposed to be expecting the glory and joy of God even in the hard spot. So as you recall, last two weeks, Jesus now has arrived in Bethany. Lazarus has been dead four days. He has spoken to Martha and Mary. And we saw Jesus in His, his humanity weep over the death of His good friend. Verse 37, John 11, by some, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? Now, they're remembering Jesus' last public miracle. John chapter 9, He healed a man born blind. And they're saying, now, if He could have healed a man born blind, surely He could have healed Lazarus. Where was He? This is what they're trying to to reconcile. They're trying to reconcile Jesus' power. He healed a man born blind. 
and Jesus' love. He wept at the death of Lazarus. And Jesus' delay. Why was He late? Where was God? How many times have you heard this? I've been in ministry for 30 years. I hear it a lot. People want to know, where was God? In my hard spot. Why didn't God show up when I wanted Him to? Why didn't He answer my prayer the way I prayed it? I hear this a lot, beloved. Sometimes these are questions that are expressed in deep pain and grief. But beloved, it's not up to us to reconcile the ways of God. (laughs) It's not up to us to do these things. But this is always the world's accusation. If God were good, why did He let that happen? If He were omnipotent, why didn't He stop it? This is always the world's the world's accusation. People demand that God give an accounting of Himself. Beloved, don't ever do that. If you've been guilty of it, repent. Don't you dare call God to account in your life. God doesn't explain Himself to His creatures. If you call yourself a Christian, don't, de- don't demand that God explain Himself to you. He, one, He never will. He's not obliged to do it and He never does it. He never does it. Does it. Do not call God to account. Why didn't God fix that? Why didn't He stop that? Why did He allow that? Beloved, that's sin. Just trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Lord, I don't understand why it hurts so much right now. But I know You're a good God. I know Romans 8.28 is true. I know I'm going to see Your glory at some point. And I know I'm going to taste Your joy. Beloved, that's what Christianity is about. It's about faith. Do you believe any of that? Then live like you believe it. This is not just words that we say on Sunday. These are words that we're supposed to live Monday through Saturday out in the world. And people around us are supposed to see it and they're supposed to say, Wow! What an awesome God you must have to walk through this and believe and trust even though you can't explain or or understand. Beloved, this is how we're supposed to live. You remember last week, he told the disciples, he said, I'm glad Lazarus died for your sake. Why? Because through this, you're going to believe even more than you've ever believed before. God's always doing something. Listen, when he does something in my life, He's doing something in your life because you're supposed to read God off my life and how I respond. And when God does something in your life, He's doing something in my life because I'm supposed to read God off your life. Whether it's blessing, praise the Lord, a great day of blessing. Or if it's a day of trial. We know Romans 8.28 is true. Beloved, this is evangelism. Lifestyle evangelism as we talked about the last couple of weeks. Lifestyle evangelism. We can't begin to understand God. He's infinitely above us. Paul tells us that His ways are unsearchable. His ways are unfathomable. They are past finding out. And so I grieve when I hear these backhanded accusations about why God did this, why God didn't do this. Beloved, this is unseemly for professed Christians to be talking like this. We're supposed to just simply trust 
the Lord. I love what Elihu told Job in Job 33.13. Why do you complain against God? He doesn't give an account to anyone. <laughs> He's God. He doesn't explain Himself. So please, beloved, don't ask for an accounting from the Lord. David said it perfectly in Psalm 37.5. Commit your way to the Lord and trust Him. Good day, hard day. Commit your way to the Lord and trust Him. The problem is, most people who claim to be His, they don't trust Him. Not when it gets hard. Do you trust Job's God? Do you trust Job's God? Job's God's your God if you're a Christian. When it gets down to it, many who call themselves Christians simply do not trust the Lord. Verse 38, Jesus therefore again being deeply moved within came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus was deeply moved within. Some commentators have various reasons for this. Uh, this is a very strong Greek verb. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. We talked a lot about last week that Jesus is the God-man. He's, he's complex. He is, he's 100% God. He's 100% man. I concentrate on His divinity most often. But He is a man and He wept as a man. And we see here in verse 38, again, He is still deeply moved at this situation. And I think part of it is because these, these Jews are questioning His motives. And we talked about last week that Martha, even Martha and Mary said in a backhanded way, you're late, God. And I think this grieves the Lord when he, His motives are questioned and He is not trusted. He weeps. And of course he knows he's going to unleash divine power and raise a man who has been dead for four days and is in serious decomposition. He's going to call him out of the grave. Of course he knows it. Of course he knows he's about to do this. He is, that's the key message of John 11, he is the resurrection and the life. So I want to step back one more time, then we're going to push through to the end. Step back one more time. Verse 5 and 6, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so He tarried two days, and Lazarus died. Verse 15, He told the disciples, I'm glad for your sake that I was not in Bethany, that you might believe. Jesus is going to use the trial of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and He's going to solidify the faith of His disciples. He's going to convert many of the Jewish witnesses. Oh, and He's going to convert people from every nation, tongue, and tribe through the, the account that's in the Bible of Jesus calling a decomposed man out of the grave. Do you see the love of God here? We talked a little bit about it last week. Are we willing to go through a trial that God may get glory? And that God may convert sinners? Are you available? Are you available to be used of God? In any way, Without restriction, without qualification, Lord, use me for Your glory. 
Use me for your glory. As I've said to you, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord in your trial. He's doing something infinitely more than you could ever begin to imagine. This is not going to be a healing. Probably the most that Martha and Mary could envision was a healing. It's not going to be a healing. It's going to be a lot bigger than a healing. It's not going to be a resuscitation. It's going to be a resurrection. He's going to blow up their hearts. He's going to blow up their minds. You know, we don't have a clue how awesome Jesus is. They didn't know how awesome He is. But they're about to get a lesson. He's about to cut this funeral short. A funeral in, in, uh, in the first century among the Jews, it would last seven days sometimes. He's going to cut this one a little bit short. He's going to cut it a little bit short. I don't want you to forget the lesson we've learned here in John 11. That it's about Jesus. It's about His glory. And we're about to see it's about the joy of His people. The problem is, as I said, most of us are so impatient, we won't wait for the joy to come. We won't, we won't wait for the Lord. We're impatient with the Lord. We don't trust the Lord. We don't rest in what the Lord is doing. It's, beloved, it's not about you. It's about what God wants to do in you and through you. I pray that we're hearing this and understanding it. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so He tarried. And they experienced a great sorrow. But I want you to see as we finish this chapter, here comes the glory of God. Here comes inexpressible joy. Here comes the building of the faith of His disciples. Here comes the conversion of many Jews. And here comes the conversion of people from every nation, tongue, and tribe because of this account. And that includes you. And that includes me. God can be trusted, beloved, in the trial. God can be trusted in the trial. Verse 39, Jesus said, remove the stone. What did Martha say? Martha kind of has a knee-jerk reaction. She says, Lord, He's been dead four days. He's been dead four days. There'll be a stench. It's like she feels the need to, to clarify a few things for God. To bring God up to speed. To make sure God's on the right page. God! He's dead! He'll stink! Of course Jesus knows this. Of course the Lord knows this. She's a lot like you and me. She doesn't yet really know how awesome Jesus is. But she's about to find out. But she's got to learn something first. 
Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Isn't that beautiful? The world says, seeing is believing. The Christian says, Jesus says, our God says, believing is seeing. You say, Jim, I've been in this trial for three years. I haven't seen any, I haven't seen any of God's glory yet. Wait. It's coming. It's coming. I haven't felt any of God's joy yet. It's coming! Do you believe Him? Or do you reject God if He doesn't perform on your timetable? Glory is coming. Joy is coming. I don't care if it takes 80 years. Joy is coming. Glory is coming. We're just called to believe it. We're just called to believe it and live it. It's not hard. <laughs> it's just that many who call themselves Christians don't really, don't really believe it. It's why you and I often, most often, sometimes we miss the glory of God. We're not really looking for it. We're too preoccupied with our problem. <laughs> it's like Jesus is going to have to say, Martha, get your eyes off the corpse. Get your eyes off the tomb. You look at me. Right? Look at me. <laughs> Let me ask you, are you looking at God? Or are you looking at the hard thing? We're not to be preoccupied with the trial. We're supposed to be looking at the Lord Jesus says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Martha, get your eyes off the tomb. Look at me and believe. Verse 41 and 42. So they removed the stone. Jesus raised His eyes and He said, Father, I thank Thee that Thou heardest me. And I knew that Thou hearest me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that Thou didst send me. Jesus is not asking for permission. He's not asking for authority. He's not asking for the power to raise Lazarus. He has all of those things. He's simply thanking God. And He's simply praying out loud that all the witnesses will understand the Father and the Son, they always work in perfect concert. Always in perfect accord. They act as one. They are one. The Father and I are, someone tell me from Scripture, are one. I know the world hates the Trinity. I know unbelievers hate it. It makes me worship. <laughs> it makes me worship. My awesome God is, is, a, is, a, is a Trinitarian God. I don't understand it, but I worship and he stumbles the wise in the world who reject this biblical revelation. So this prayer is a testimony to the bystanders that they might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 43, And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! Now, as one preacher said, and I'm sure you've heard this said before, but I like it, I'm going to say it again. 
it's a good thing he said Lazarus. Because there was enough power in that command to empty every grave on the earth. This is the power of our, of our God, our Creator God, who effortlessly speaks 400 plus billion galaxies. You know, I'll probably read a science book next year. It'll be 600 plus billion. I'll read another science book in five years. It'll be 900 plus billion galaxies. You know, Hubble can't find the end of the cosmos. But he said... Lazarus, come forth. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something I never asked you to do. But I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to put yourself there. Are you there? Can you see the tomb? Are you standing there with the crowd? Okay, you, you live in Jerusalem, but you came out the two miles because this is a prominent family. You, you've come to know them. You, you, you want to share your sorrows with them. You want to pay your respects. You've seen the pain of Martha and Mary. You've seen the grief. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And then this carpenter guy from Nazareth shows up. Are you seeing it? Do you see Jesus walk up? And he tells him to remove the stone. What is this, some kind of cruel joke? Is this a cruel joke? Remove the stone. Who does this guy think he is? Who does this guy think he is? You're appalled and you're horrified. Remove the stone. You want Martha and Mary to see the decomposition of the brother? You are horrified. You can't believe it. And then in your utter disbelief, you see men are actually removing the stone from the grave. And from where you're standing, you can see His feet. You can see His legs and His feet. You can see He's all wrapped up in there. And you can smell Him. And Martha was right. There is a stench. This is awful. This is the worst thing you've ever seen in your life. You've never seen anything more horrible than this. And then this carpenter guy from Nazareth, he says, Lazarus, come out! Do you see it? You could hear a pin drop, but you can't hear a pin drop because your heart is beating so hard, it's in your ears. And then you see His feet move. You see Him move. And now you're really horrified. <laughs> you see Him start to come out. You instinctively hold your breath. Your heart is in your throat. You're feeling some kind of mix between shock and terror and awe and wonder. And Lazarus is coming out. Lazarus is coming out. This carpenter guy from Nazareth, he's not just a carpenter guy from Nazareth. He's infinitely more. He's God. Do you believe it? Do you see why this was all about love? <laughs> Do you... Do you see why this was all about glory? Do you see why this was all about love? Dead men obey God. Which, by the way, beloved, I don't have time to go into it, but theologically, this is how you and I are born again. It's how we got saved. 
we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus says this, this carpenter guy from Nazareth, He says, unbind him and let him go. And you can't believe it. Everybody's standing there and they're just in stunned, shocked. Oh, a dead man's come out of the tomb. A decomposed man has come out of the tomb. Jesus was right, wasn't He? It was all about the glory of God. Jesus was right. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And we've been talking about this for the last three weeks. We've been talking about how the joy always arrives for God's people. Can you imagine their joy? Will you trust God like this? Can you imagine their joy? Laughing with their brother, Martha and Mary, laughing with Lazarus, who most recently was dead. I bet that's joy. <laughs> this is our God, beloved. This is what our God does. God's pursuit of His glory, and this is the essential theology lesson of John 11, God's pursuit of His glory. We see that, yes, indeed, it was, in fact, the pursuit of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus' joy. They had to go through a hard thing, a very hard thing. But that did not negate the truth of God's Word. He's always coming in glory, and He's always bringing His joy for His people. Verse 45, just briefly, I'm not going to preach uh, uh, to the end of the, the chapter, but did you notice in verse 45? What's the net effect here? Verse 45. Many therefore believed. How many Christians today, Lord, I want what I want. I want it when I want it. How selfish is that, beloved? No doubt there are people in your life that God wants to convert through you. You may have to go through a trial for that to happen. Are you available? Will you trust God when it gets hard? Will you trust Him when it gets hard? You can read verses 46 to, 40, uh, to 57 for yourself at your leisure. But I just want you to notice here that the religious leaders um, here in verse 53, they never deny this miracle. There are too many witnesses. They never deny it. They never say it's, it's, a, it's fraud. Uh, but their solution was, well, let's kill God. This was a real miracle. They don't deny it. But they're beside, they're beside themselves. What are we doing? Verse 47. For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe him. So they, they decide, verse 53, from that day on they plan to kill him. Oh, let's kill God! This highlights the fact that unbelief is always willful. It's always willful. It's not an intellectual issue. It is a moral issue. I tell this to people all the time. People I speak with and debate with. I say, listen... You, this is not they say, I don't understand. I don't understand. You're not making a sound argument. I say, it's not about you understanding. You're morally rejecting God. It's not that you don't understand. It's that you do understand. 
This is the truth of the Gospel of John. It's not that we don't understand. It's not that men don't understand. Men do understand and they reject Christ Jesus. These men, these men rejected the Lord. They knew He called a man out of the tomb and they still rejected Him. It's not an intellectual issue, beloved. It's a moral issue. So I want to remind you as we close, it's not about you. It's about, it's about Jesus. It's about His glory. It's about what He wants to do in and through your life. And if you think the cosmos is, was put here for you, and it all re revolves around you, you don't understand John 11. You can't get John 11. We've been saying it all along. The world doesn't understand John 11. Even those who are merely religious don't understand John 11. Only the born-again heart understands John 11. Only the born-again heart loves John 11. Yes, Lord, even if I must suffer, I want Your glory and I want Your joy. I don't want my temporal joy that I can conjure up and orchestrate for myself. I want Your joy. I want Your joy in my life, Lord, as You have Your way in me and as You do what You desire through me. So what does it look like to live for the glory of God? It looks the first thing. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. It looks like first and foremost, for those of you who do not know Christ, for those of you who've never truly met Him, truly fallen in love with Him, it looks like, it looks like um, Martha's confession in verse 27. You must confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You must, you must come to Him and this is one thing Jesus is saying in verse 11. Come to me. Come to me. <laughs> I am the resurrection and the life. You have no hope without me, but in me, in me, you have every hope. Oh, an imperishable hope. Beloved, this is awesome stuff. Jesus says, come to me. And I challenge you, if you're not a Christian, or if you're merely religious, or if you've merely gone through some ceremony as a child, but you've never fully committed to Christ, this is the first step. Commit to Christ. Name Him as your Lord and Savior. Follow Him in believer's baptism. That's the first thing you must do. And then, as a true believer, you must live differently than the rest of the world. You must make Jesus famous. That's your job. That's the only reason you're on the earth. I know you think you're on the earth for something else. Or, you know, for some lesser thing. And yes, we do have subordinate responsibilities and subordinate joys and... Uh, but the preeminent, the preeminent function of a disciple is to make much of Jesus, is to make Jesus famous in the world. It's called discipleship. It's what we've been talking about since February. That we would be sold out, narrow way, fruit-bearing, supreme love disciples. So I challenge you tonight, Christian, don't waste your life on bubbles that burst. I challenge you tonight as you take communion. I challenge you tonight. It's going to be all different. <laughs> I accept this challenge. I'm going to ask God, you know, whatever is wrong, wherever I'm broken, wherever it's still all about me, Lord, reveal that to me. And give me the strength and the courage to break it in my life. That you might be more fully glorified 
and that I may more fully taste your joy. So that's the challenge as we go into communion. That we might remember who we are supposed to be and how we're supposed to live. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. As you know, we have open communion here. And uh, so all who have believed, made a profession of faith in Christ, and followed Him in believer's baptism, you're welcome to come and partake of the table. The way we do it is Kelvin will play a song and take a few minutes, prepare your hearts, don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. I always remind you of this. This was Paul's words to the Corinthians. Confess your sin. And then come and let's rejoice and remember why our sin is forgiven. It's because who He is and what He's done. It's not because we're religious. It's because who He is and what He's done. So we, we come and we gather to celebrate this awesome salvation, this awesome Redeemer. And we come, maybe at least some of us, ready to give ourselves afresh and anew over to Jesus that His glory might truly shine through us. We acknowledge, great God, it is not about us. We understand it's all about You. Help us, Lord, to know this, to live this. As we come to Your table to celebrate what a great and mighty and awesome God You are.